Hey, this is Thor from Cybrary. If you've been enjoying the Cybrary podcast or one of our other series like 401 Access Denied or Go For It with Sarah Moffat, then make sure to like, follow, or subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And we'd love to hear from you. Join the discussion by leaving us a comment or review on your platform of choice or emailing us at podcast at cybrary.it and you could be featured in a future episode. From all of us at Cybrary, thank you and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of 401 Access Tonight, the bi-weekly podcast that brings you the latest news, updates, trends, and really brings great discussions and a lot of security and industry topics that really helps educate you, keep you informed, and just make sure that you're able to get a really good understanding of what's really happening in the industry. I'm the co-host of the show, Joseph Carson, Chief Security Scientist at Psychotic, and I'm joined here by another fantastic returning guest to the show. So, Jonathan, welcome back. It's great to have you. Can you tell us just, you know, for the audience again, a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, sure. So uh, I work at Cyberry, and I'm my current role is the principal infrastructure engineer. So what that means is I own everything from when a dev hits commit to when it's live and a user's interacting with on the site. So that goes with everything from the cloud to cybersecurity to everything in between. Um, so, I'm a cybersecurity guy. Yeah, sounds complicated <laughs> at a cybersecurity company. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's great to have you back. And today, we're basically going to get digging into really. You know, we've had. There's always great reports that comes out each year. I'm always there's some you know really fantastic reports that really gives the industry kind of a point check in how we're progressing. And one of those reports that I'm always waiting for is the Verizon Data Breach Investigation Report. It always kind of, you get the news coming, coming out about late April and then in early May, sometimes in the first two weeks, it drops. And the whole industry then takes a pause and takes a look at the report just to see you know, what the past year has told us. And of course, we've had major data breaches in the past year that were quite significant. And uh, the report itself, you know, I'm always looking at, I try to analyze it for my audience I create a blog, I you know, do a couple of podcasts, and, and I do uh, webinars to really help kind of analyze it. Um, so this, for me, what, what does the report mean for you uh, when it comes out? When, you know, how, how do you perceive the report? And is this something that you find very valuable? Um, yeah, so it's I kind of use it as kind of like the temperature gauge of mm-hmm. like what I've been seeing throughout the year. I mean, it, it, kind, of, it kind of helps like confirm or deny some thoughts I've had like, interviewing and talking with a bunch mm-hmm. of people throughout the year. And then I think one of the really good things I use about it is it's it's easy enough. They have like executive summaries and things like that. So I can provide that to other people and kind of like educate them, mm-hmm. right? Like I can educate like our internal team on like what's happening in the industry since we all work in cybersecurity. And it, it kind of takes that off my plate. So I'm not the one responsible for coming <laughs> up with like, a, here's what's happening in the industry, right? Because that mm-hmm. takes me out of the fight for a week two weeks maybe to like make a presentation similar to that and kind of, and so I use it on a, a couple fronts, um, mm-hmm. one from, for me, and then hopefully like sharing it out to like fellow coworkers and other people in the industry that kind of have an interest that don't typically know about these types of things. Mm-hmm. Their executive summaries, a pretty good, a pretty good cover for kind of what's happening. Absolutely. So. It kind of also confirms that, you know, a lot of the strategies and investments that organizers are making, you know, directions, the threat landscape, it really just makes sure it's a point in time where I do as well to check, make sure we're doing the right things and going the right direction. Um, because it's important to have a trend. It's important to see where things are going. And, and so important to see which types of threats are on the, on the increase, which ones are being successful. And this was the 14th edition of the report. So it's been going on for 14 years now. I'm just looking at some of the statistics. It uh, included 88 countries. So it is a truly global report. It's a report that includes 
you know, many countries around the world. Um, it had 83 different contributors. So uh, these are organizations who deal with incident response, who deal with investigations, agencies. So they're really engaged in a lot of the analysis into what's happening in all of these incidents. The total incidents uh, was seven, just under 80,000, 79,635 incidents, which also had about 5,258 data breaches. So it's always important that the report does separate the incidents versus data breaches. And one thing that was in this report, it actually showed a quite significant increase over the past, over the previous year, where it actually showed that the number of data breaches had a, a massive increase. It went up from uh, 3,950 in 2020 to over 5,258 in 2021. Uh, for me, when I looked at that number, that was me, I think it was just the resetting of correctly um, categorizing ransomware now as a data breach, where previously it was a security incident. They didn't classify it. And even in the 2020 report, they actually had a footnote saying, this doesn't represent the change in late 2019 when ransomware started to become, you know, exfiltrating data. Um, is that something, what, what's your thoughts around those numbers? What did it tell you? Yeah, so I think the numbers, like that that correction definitely helped. But I also think, I mean, with the, the last year that we've had, like a lot of people had a lot of free time on their hands. <laughs> and so I think a lot of people that might have normally just been working like nine to five at a factory mm -hmm. that were like doing this stuff on the, the moonlight, you know, now had full time to be, you know, stuck at home. I'm getting bored. Like, oh, maybe I'll start researching more. And then like, I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar. Like you go down these rabbit holes sometimes when you see like a new technique and you'll spend three, four days just trying to like completely understand that. And then you're like, mm -hmm. oh, cool. And now let's go out and test it. And since you have nothing else to do because everything's closed, like you can't visit friends, yeah. families, like <laughs> I think that had a lot to kind of start to like creep in there and people that we wouldn't have normally seen like actively try to start exploiting and making money this way, like kind of mm -hmm. finally got in the game. Yeah, absolutely. Some some countries, the cyber criminals have uh, had a lot more focus and, and uh, time in order to to engage in their techniques uh, rather than kept busy doing other things. So this this almost became their their social entertainment in order to, to keep uh, yeah. active. And also at the same time, as well as not only was it the threat actors and, and cyber criminals who, you know, got more involved, but also the change in the threat landscape for, for organizations having to go and work remotely also meant that I've seen a lot of organizations who, you know, opened up RDP ports, public facing internet, so that employees could continue accessing servers. And of course, within a couple of seconds, those machines get um, uh, brute force attacked to gain access. And then you, they sell it on to other cyber criminals who will then abuse it and deploy things like ransomware. So it really meant that, you know, organizations who were facing this hard, tough decision about do we, do we stay secure or do we stay productive? And they're faced with those tough choices. And not all organizations can do everything. They can't open up, you know, um, services to the public internet. But at the same time, maybe they're not skilled enough or don't have the people or the people aren't just in the office in order to turn on the security. So they have to face those tough choices about balance. And do you think also the pandemic has also opened up a lot of doors for criminals to be successful? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tough conversation when you're sitting at a table and your entire business is just tanking because, you know, you don't have stuff, uh, you don't have like sales coming in. And so it's like, well, how do we keep enabling salespeople to keep making the sales that pays for keeping the lights on, securing these things? And so I think it's, it's a very difficult situation that I don't, I don't envy any CISO or CTOs or VPs of engineering that had to sit at that table and basically get told, like, make it work. Like, we're going to accept the risk. 
Like, I think also people having cyber insurance is more common these mm-hmm. days. So I think that helps a lot. People are like, okay, cool. Like, at least we have some sort of cover if something were to happen, but we need to make money. Like we don't have our traditional ways. We don't have people on the road going face to face with people. Like we need to, we need to make this work and we need to make it work now. Yeah. Especially as it started drawing on. Yeah. It's a tough choice. It became clear. Yeah. It's a really tough decision because, you know, ultimately, you know, the organizations of business need to make money. Um, and they have to prioritize that because if they're not, you know, of course, then security is just being wasted. <laughs> you know, it's, it's yep. you know, one of the things is security and productivity is sometimes a double-edged sword and it's finding the right balance between those. And I think one of the things, you know, yep. as I mentioned before, even, you know, the ransomware ev- evolution has changed as well that has also impacted the, the figures within the Verizon Data Breach Investigation Report. With that, you know, it evolving late 2019 to becoming data exfiltration. And that's become significant. And also we've started seeing it turning into ransomware as a service. We have affiliate programs. We've got organized crime who basically have a production line. You know, they have, they're hiring, uh, you know, different parts of the chain. They've got people who specialize in ac- access, just obtaining access. And yeah. that's their main goal is to, to gain access um, and get credentials and get entry points in the organizations. And then you've got the other specialists that they hire, which is the cryptors, those who specialize in encryption and and cryptology, and be able to then create these ransomware payloads that are very efficient, very effective, very, very well um, maintained and updated, and new variants coming out frequently. Then you've got those who are willing to use it and abuse it, and will pay sometimes uh, as far as affiliate program. Um, And this is where you get into some of those... uh, a bit of you know the affiliate programs where those who create it make it available and, and sell it for you know let's say joint rewards or loyalty programs they lose control over who the targets are, um, which also we've seen you know causing a lot of disruptions where some targets were not the ones that they would have liked and and, and painted a big target on yeah. the organized crimes <laughs> backs. So and then you've got also the help desk side. We really you know they hire help desk that, you know, to really help organizations find out how to pay, you know, cryptocurrency, bitcoins, and, and ultimately help them decrypt the data, which we also seen in the, I think it was the Irish Health Service, which was majorly impacted by uh, by that. Um, and one flaw we've seen in the decryptors is that the decryption process is not very efficient. So I think that's where a lot of this ransomware payments is going to go into investment, is making the decryption much better. But with that, I mean, what's your thoughts yeah. around, you know, around the report's indication of the whole ransomware of a service and, and being classified as now uh, data breach and not just a security incident? Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting um, it's an interesting way of thinking about it. That I, and I'm glad that it, it brings it to people's attention, right? So the way I like to kind of phrase this is was uh, so I have a history in in the military, mm-hmm. and so with certain conflicts recently, people tend to assume that the adversary is not as smart as you or not as, you know, entrepreneurial as you. And they start to assume all these things like, oh, it's just a guy in a basement or it's a government sponsored group of people doing things. And they don't tend to think that, no, like these people also are human beings. They also probably have entrepreneurial skills. Like they're out there trying to advance the thing. And so a lot of people underestimate your adversary in a lot of these situations. And so I think this report like starts to kind of bring that up and highlight it as like, no, these people are not just a guy in a basement or a state sponsored. Like there's actually people out there trying to make money and like make a service just like everybody else in Silicon Valley and across the world. Like software as a service started, you know, getting big a couple of years ago and now it's finally 
it's somebody found a product market fit and it works and they're exploiting <laughs> it. And it's, it's, I think that's a good thing to kind of like raise attention to that. Right. So I'm, I'm super excited that they, yeah. they started acknowledging that. I agree. And that, uh, for me, when I look at it, it's, 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 it shows you that, you know, these organized crime, they see it as a business. It's, it's a business for them. It's, it's, you know, we're providing a service. Um, it's just a service you don't like. You don't have to like it. <laughs> but um, they see it as that they're exposing security vulnerabilities. Um, but they're abusing it for financial profit. Um, and that's ultimately, you know, you know, it's a business model for them and they are doing it very successfully. So um, I'm hoping that, you know, we, we do find a way to get a step ahead as well. Um, another major thing in the report, and this actually was introduced in last year's, but it was further enhanced this year, is that it was more aligned to the regulations. So, for example, you know, we have the CIS security controls. We have got things like, you know, um, SANS. We have NIST framework. So it really started to tie more into the controls themselves um, and showing um, that map of, for example, the attack framework, the MITRE attack framework, and, and uh, really mapping into which ones are being abused more, which ones that are coming a bit more, you know, the common techniques. Because um, ultimately what I see is a lot of organizations, you know, it's the privilege escalation side of things. It's uh, using stolen credentials. Um, uh, having local administrator rights in order to gain access and allow to remove organizations who have backup um, strategies. Their backing up um, strategy is not as it's not actually designed for ransomware. It's designed for fault tolerance. It's designed for availability. So their backups online yep. with the same credentials to both production, same network, flat network. Um, so ultimately, it's really I think the report itself is great to show that alignment to show you know how it aligns to regulations and compliance. Um, any thoughts around around those that, you know, um, I, I guess that's more that the help to get the budget to pay for things. I think that's the goal. Um, yeah, so. exactly. Like, I think it's, it fits in well with like the managers and the people that are out there actually like fighting for dollars, right? Like they can use it to prove like, oh, like here's these certifications we have and things like that. Here's what the industry is showing, like where things are getting hit, like these, this control, this control, that mm -hmm. control, right? Like it's not necessarily for like the end user sitting down working in a, a sock trying to defend and do all this stuff. Like I think that guy could really care less what CIS control is being Correct. attacked, right? He's he's just there trying to defend it. But for the people that are trying to get more budget yes. and get more butts and seats uh, for more personnel and things like that, I think it's super helpful because it actually provides like visual like data. Like, nope, this is this, right? Because I think a lot of people, as you're as a security person trying mm -hmm. to make the sale at the C-suite or the VP level, it's very difficult to like explain CIS controls, right? Like people's yeah. eyes glaze over and they're like, okay, yeah, sure. It's a control. Like, great. Right. <laughs> but if you can like point and be like, nope, 900, uh, in, like 900 organizations in this specific industry were hit with CIS control, you know, whatever. Right. Yeah. And so it's like, that's where they're attacking. Like, this is what we need. And I think it just provides more ammo and makes it easier to kind of get those dollars that you, you need back in the back into the socks that have traditionally been understaffed. And yeah, absolutely. That's that's the kind of where my takeaway was as well. It was that yeah. they need, you know, you don't want that just to report on fear because the, the previous right. year, <laughs> reports years ago was all about fear. It was all about, you know, that, you know, I'm scared now. Everyone, <laughs> there's so many instances making it look like it's so easy. 
Um, but the more recent one reports have really thought about that, you know, we need to show how it can be usable, how they can get, make sure that they can actually present back to the business to get the budget they need to, to you know, harden, strengthen security, become more resilient. And so for me, that was a very positive move. And of course, it means that you've got a broader audience. Yeah. So it's not just about security professionals. This is expanded to, uh, for example, you know, IT audit. Um, as well. So, you know, when uh, they're looking at doing auditing um, of compliance regulation, they've got more information to support those, uh, you know, requirements. So, so one of the things... There's a couple other things, though, I I kind of, I'd like to address, like, I think I would hope next year, if they listen to this and anybody figures Mm -hmm. out, I hope they start to talk more about, like, risk. Yes. I think that (laughs) would really help, like, talking about, like, at the C-suite and the VP level, if they could start to tie this all back to, like, how much risk and things like that, because ultimately that's what it comes down to when you're fighting for dollars. And I think they have all the data to be able to, like, prove that. And so I think that would be a very Mm -hmm. interesting kind of twist to kind of help do that sell a little bit further. Yeah, they did introduce so. they did introduce an impact category this time. And I thought that was really, I mean, that's I think that's the beginning. I think they realized they need to go right. down the risk path. Um, yeah. So this impact side of things that um, it kind of brought a new you know, visualization, meaning that there is an initial financial impact, but for some companies who respond really well, they're financially resulting can actually be a positive. So there was certain, you know, if they show these organizations do do become victims and they show that they are resilient, they can recover quickly, then actually it brings confidence to that service. Um, So they did actually bring that impact category, but I agree it needs to, that actually should probably become the focus is how do we turn this into, you know, usable, you know, business kind of, because ultimately at the end of the day, my job, I I agree, you know, when I look at my skills as security, that's my skills, my knowledge, and my background. Yeah. But when I look at what my job is and role is for, to help businesses, is to analyze and understand risk and reduce it and find ways to maybe use my security knowledge to help reduce the risk. It might be training, it might be documentation, it might be automation, it might be something else, it might be technology, it might be human-based. But ultimately right. trying to reduce that risk is, is ultimately our goal. And I think the report needs to start kind of moving more into that direction for sure. Yeah. And I think it'd be interesting if they could start to bring in like me personally would love to see the data on the amount of money that a security like an organization spends on security. Right. And then I want to see how much money if they got attacked, they spent on ransom. And I want to see if there's like some correlation that like can prove and be like, hey, we spent zero money on cybersecurity, but like our ransom was $40 $40 million, you know? Right. And so I think that's super interesting and not necessarily just ransoms, but like the resulting amount of money that it costs to clean up said mess. Yeah. Right. And I think that would be, that would be interesting, What's, especially because well, they have access. Yeah. What was the balance? What was the balance? Was it a positive or negative at the end of the year? <laughs> yeah. Because I think even if it, even it goes the other way, right? Like if they come out mm-hmm. and they say there's no correlation between cybersecurity spend and, you know, protection levels mm-hmm. or like ability to get hacked, I think that's I think that's a very interesting thing, and I think it helps us practitioners because when vendors come in and want to charge us mm-hmm. a ton of money, we can be like, "Hey, you know, like it doesn't necessarily correlate that your software is very expensive; that it's actually going to like prevent these attacks." Yeah. And so, I think that's that's a powerful tool uh, coming from the not vendor side. Yeah, any, so, any it'd be interesting. Any organization that uh, stockpiled bitcoins. <laughs> preparing for ransomware have probably made a nice profit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Like anyone from the not petty times says, we need to buy you know, a couple of you know grand in, in Bitcoins. 
And now they're probably sitting on you know, a couple hundred thousand or several million of Bitcoins just in that preparation. That's their cyber case. insurance right there. <laughs> exactly. That's the cyber, cyber yeah. captive. So, that, so next next thing that I really find interesting as well was that, but the report really highlights another major area for me was that uh, cyber attacks don't care about who the target is. <laughs> they have no ethics whatsoever. Everyone is a potential target. That you know, it doesn't matter if you're hospital. It doesn't matter if you're you know in government or you know financial, um, public services, or even just the citizen sitting at home. Um, you know, basically streaming um, uh, entertainment or playing games. Um, everyone is a potential target. And it really shows that, you know, we look at some of the summaries that the 85% of the data breaches involved the human element of it. It's not to say they were responsible or they caused it, um, but they were part of the attack path. The result that means that the human side of things is becoming the easier path for success for cyber criminals. Thirteen um, percent yes. um, was non-DDoS incidents involved ransomware, and also um, only three percent of the breaches involved vulnerability exploitation, which is a significant one for me, showing that um, they're less targeting. It used to be all about application or server or OS vulnerabilities. That was kind of that main entry point, and it seems they've moved away. They decided that you know um, it's much easier and also easier to disguise themselves as authentic employees. Um, so what, what does this kind of tell you in regards to where we need to spend the time uh, or, or energy or focus? Yeah, I think I think it's interesting, especially I think it, it there might be a correlation to with what's happened the last year with the pandemic and people being mm-hmm. at home and not being in an office. And so everything is virtual. It's an email. It's a phone call that comes in. Right. right. Like it's not necessarily like it used to be where you're sitting face to face and you're having conversation with HR or the IT help desk, right? Like, it's very easy to verify that in real life. But as we start to move away, Mm -hmm. I don't think we necessarily were prepared with, like, training our employees of, like, phishing phone calls Mm -hmm. and, like, phishing, not necessarily the traditional phishing emails, but, like, a lot of rounds, like a Zoom coming in and things like that. It's it's very difficult to kind of predict that that was going to happen. And I think, I mean... Maybe somebody out there trained their people to like do phishing phone calls. I'm assuming very large financial corporations and things like that have kind of done some training around that. But I, from experience, I know that that training is very dry and boring, yeah. and I don't know how many people paid attention. Um, and so I think that that's kind of an interesting thing that we probably need to consider. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's still people like people have always been the, the weakest link. And I, I think sometimes us security professionals forget just how layman the average person is when it comes to like a lot of these yeah. things. Um, I remember recently uh, dealing with my my parents, right? They're in their 70s and they have to go onto a government website to renew some, you know, government mm-hmm. entry forms or, you know, passport or something like that. Mm-hmm. And these government websites now have like multi-factor. But like this was his first time experiencing the idea of like multi-factor. <laughs> And he was absolutely frustrated with the entire process of, mm-hmm. like, how to do this. Um, and so I think, you know, that just highlights that, yes, security is, like, moving, but, you know, people are still, they just don't necessarily innately understand, like, a lot of these controls right. and what they're for. And I think it's 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 something that we sometimes forget about a lot on this side of the, uh, the fence. Yeah. we One of the things I, I realize, I mean, we had to realize in the past year, a lot of people have had to learn a lot of new tools. New techniques, you know, they've had to move the communications to online. So they're using a lot of social 
communication tools. They've had to move to video conferencing, so they had to, to learn things like Zoom and Teams and go to webinar and whatever. There's tons of applications they've had to accelerate and learn. Yep. And on top of that, you know, trying to get them to use it safely and securely, especially when the security, uh, in some cases, is complex. It, it you know really slows down their ability to perform and be successful and, and, and do their job. Um, the last thing you want to be doing is is really creating yep. friction with the users. Um, so this is for me is that we have to understand, we have to start understanding it, but we have to really move towards a much more usable security approach, meaning security must move into the background. And when an employee's faced, you know, like your parents, when, when an employee's faced with tough choices where it's either I get my job done or security stops me from doing my job, when they're faced with that right. tough choice, they're going to choose the easy path and say, you know, I'm going to do my job. I need to get it done. That's what I get paid for. Um, and I'll take the risk, the security risk in doing so. And this is the challenge. We have to start looking at that when they have that choice is that the, the choice and path is always the easy choice is the secure path. Security has right. to make it easier, not more difficult. And that's always the balance that we had to find when we're going down that path. And yeah. I, I think that, you know, also getting into one of the things you mentioned about um, awareness training. I think awareness training has been working. There is, you know, emphasis around um, phishing attempts and, you know, emails and indicators of compromise. So employees are learning more about being more cautious with links and more cautious about, um, you know, what attachments they open and so forth. But I think the problem is, is that now people think that that's the only threat. That's the priority. That's the one that they must watch for. Yeah. But then that means that they become more lax about the other threats, um, you know, that basically entering their credentials into malicious websites, how did they tell the difference? Um, saving their passwords and browsers, right. and, you know, accessing uh, corporate you know, services in public Wi-Fi. These start to become much more less kind of, you know, uh, on the focus point because a lot of organizations have prioritized phishing right up to the top. And now all employees, that's the, that's the only threat that they're aware of and less of the others. And there's been that lack yeah. of balance, I think. There's been a lack. I think the report really kind of, it shows that awareness training is working, that people are clicking in less things. But ultimately, it only takes one person in your organization to click on something. You're never going to get 100% you know, success yeah. at training people not to click on things because their job is to do that. So for me, I think that's really important. We need to make right. sure that it's how we prevent it after the click. <laughs> after the person does yeah. that click or yeah. opens the attachment, how do we stop it after that from from you know becoming a, a major incident? Rather than saying don't right. do it, don't click in it, we have to accept people will click in it. How do we prevent the actually you know once they click in it, the harm happening? It laterally moving, it elevating, it encrypting, it moving on and getting access to other credentials. How do we stop that from happening? I think that's where we need to probably you know emphasize um, a lot of the training and time on. Right. And then I, this reminds me of a story that my buddy who works for a very large investment bank. Um, and, and so like your security awareness training and all this stuff can be great up until, you know, somebody at management decides it'd be best if everybody had standardized Zoom backgrounds, <laughs> you know. And so then they put these standardized Zoom backgrounds on the public website so that all employees can make their virtual background uh, an approved <laughs> company virtual background. And it's like, oh, it's a guy that's going to do a phishing Zoom call. I'm just going to set that background to the company's approved background because you put it on your public website. And now I'm, I probably just disarmed 20% of your entire workforce because they're like, 
oh, I'm used to seeing this. This is normal. This is habit, right? Like this yes. guy definitely works for this company. And so it's, it's like all the security training in the world until somebody higher up is like, nah, we're going to, we're going to standardize on this, this yeah. thing and just unravel everything. And so I think employees are trying, right? But it, it's, you know, it's still, we got to, we got to keep, we got to keep going with it and kind of make sure we're not yeah. and uh, there's tunnel even, vision. You know, even even yeah. the more sophisticated ones can actually even change their face and their voice on the Zoom call as well into looking at like, like a celebrity or, you know, let's say an executive organization or a cat. <laughs> so, um, uh, so it really gets into, you know, you know, even change the background. The simple things can make people look like they should be there. Um, even if you put, right. on, on, put on the shirt of the company, if you can just find out what, you know, what they typically were or dressed to look like you should be there. No one pays attention yeah. to that. They just they assume that you're you're on there that that you're authenticated and approved person. So um, we've seen we've seen a lot uh, in last year. You know, it's it's been probably on the news quite often about you know the Zoom bombers that people has joined on a suspectedly. You know, even I think it was uh, some uh, uh, major countries like uh, uh, was it I think it was UK um, and several other governments had had someone oh, join yes. because yeah. they they basically took a picture of the uh, password and posted it on social media yep. um, and somebody yep. joined it I think that person they did go through some type of prosecution for the person but it just showed that you know uh, I think they tried to, to sue because it was not an approved access but I, I don't know what the result ultimately was but but when you post it on social media, <laughs> yeah, it's you have, you have to game. expect uh, that somebody's gonna gonna try and join and and, and get firsthand information. So, um, the next thing that really for me, what really highlighted in the report itself, so in the in the data breach investigation report, another key takeaway for me was around that misuse of credentials. Um, and also, just before I get into that, one thing I did notice that also uh, one thing that was very concerning was cloud assets started overtaking on-premise assets as the top target. Um, so basically what happened was that typically were, you know, they're targeting your direct infrastructure. Um, the report indicated that cloud assets now became, actually overtook that in the number of incidents. So meaning that the criminals are now not just targeting your on-premise, but they're actually prioritizing and targeting the cloud infrastructure more. Um, is that something, what, what's your thoughts around that, that you know, criminals are now moving more to focus on the cloud assets? Um, I think it, it makes sense, right? Especially if you think they're trying to productize and do the easiest software as a service hacking tools they can provide. Cloud access, I mean, cloud assets are there. Like, you know the endpoints, you know the IPs, like, you know where these things sit. Like, it's very publicly available. You can go in and spin up your own cloud environment, mm -hmm. right? And test and do all these things and not have to know anything about the layout of a corporate environment, right? Because most of these people spinning up cloud environments they don't most of the time know how to architect it securely. And so there's very limited numbers of ways that these things can be configured. And once you know that, it's it's very easy to write a tool that just rinse and repeat every time. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think we're finally starting to see people catch up and realize one of the things I've been saying for a couple of years now is you can't just move physical into the cloud. Like yeah. your whole idea of how to lay out infrastructure and networks and all of that basic, basic fundamentals of security like just do not apply. Like they're just yes. not set up the same way. A lot of people talk about like, oh, well, we still have DMZs and all these different mm -hmm. types of things. And it's like, yeah, no, that's great on a, on a physical network. But as you start moving in the cloud, there are much better ways to start mm -hmm. to do those types of things. And there are different ways of thinking about how it works, right? Like if you think about exposing your service publicly, you know, to the internet, it's right. 
it's most people don't think like, oh, well, I could just use a public cloud service load balancer, mm-hmm. right? So that way, that's the thing that has to get defended. And I'm pretty sure AWS, Azure, Google are all very good at defending their cloud load balancers, right? Like mm-hmm. me and no matter what organization I'm in, probably 99% of them, AWS, Google, and them are going to do a better job defending that load balancer, yep. right? Because they're handling the firewalls. They're handling all this other thing. It's it's when people are like, no, we need to do it our same way. And we're going to run this firewall appliance and like do all this other stuff. It's like, well, you're 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 basically eliminating all the security measures that these people basically built their cloud around. Yep. And so I think that's starting to highlight a lot of the fact that these traditional on-prem infrastructure guys are kind of trying to copy-paste when they move stuff to the cloud without rethinking really we're moving into a new medium almost. Yeah, I always try to, you know, when people are looking at doing cloud migrations and digital transformations, I will try to make it, you know, uh, I use a metaphor to try and explain it to them, uh, to try and simplify it so they understand it better. Because to your point, you cannot just take what you do on premise and just plug it in the cloud and expect the same results. You can't do that, you know, with a lower cost. That just doesn't happen. So I always try to explain is that, you know, the difference between, you know, having a traditional on-premise and, and, and cloud infrastructure is that it's the difference between you have your house in a garage and your, your car is parked inside your garage and you've, you're locking the door you're, and, and your security is the garage door and maybe a window, maybe a door to the side. That's your security. You control it. Um, so it means that you don't have to worry about when your car is inside the garage, whether the doors are locked, the windows are closed, the boats open, whatever. You have right. just focus on the perimeter. So, but what happens is though, when organizations try to move their assets to cloud computing resources, it's like taking your car out of the garage where you're controlling that perimeter and you're now deciding whether you put it into a paid parking lot that has much more security um, around it, you know, such as using native cloud security, um, some of the, the, the hosting providers provide, or you're deciding to park it on the street. <laughs> and, try, and, and then now you need to think about, well, yeah. now I need to close the doors. I need to close the window. Maybe I need to blacken the windows out so no one can see in. I need to close the boot. I need to add additional security. But yeah. if, you take, if you simply just take that car and park in the street or in a shared parking lot, then you have to understand that you know, now you have to think security differently. Because before, you just focus on the perimeter. You focus on that internet access point, and you want to make sure only good things got in and, 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 and prevent the bad things from getting in, um, which always meant that if attackers did get in, they had full access to the entire environment, where that means that when you move the cloud, you do need to take a different approach. You do really need to prioritize things like identities and access and privileges and encryption, and then understand as well about making sure you've got redundancies in place as well. Because if attackers ever gain access to your cloud, they can completely lock you out. <laughs> they, oh, yeah. they get, you know, we're on premise. You have redundancy. You, you can run into the lab. You can, you know, physically unplug, touch it. And unplug it. And you can gain access yeah. again through other routes. <laughs> but if it's in the cloud and they lock you out, you're, you're out. <laughs> um, yeah. And you may, you want to hope that you do have some type of at least backup that you can work with the hosting provider to restore, and that the attackers don't have access to, or you have an, an offline, uh, on-premise uh, a backup copy as well. So it's always important to understand that when you do move the cloud. And absolutely, you know, cloud assets, they're online 24-7, you know, and uh, a lot of times that with multi-cloud... Well, they don't have to be. They don't have to be. <laughs> but <laughs> what happens is that you end up, uh, that means that, you know, attackers can use them all, all, all day round, And a lot of organizations have lost the auditability of visibility of what's happening as well. Um, because when they move, now they may have multi-cloud. They may have SaaS, they may have you know virtual, they may have hosted, they may have um, infrastructure as a service. And now trying to get just visibility of what's happening on all of those means that they have multiple interfaces, multiple portals, multiple reports. 
and getting that correlated becomes a bit of a challenge. So I think for me, I think, you know, attackers are taking advantage of that lack of visibility and transparency right now. And organizations really need to make sure that when they have a cloud strategy, they need to think from the basics ground up about building a new security strategy for cloud specifically, or take advantage yep. of the services that's already built in. Right. Yeah, I think people, I, especially I do a lot of cloud migrations and stuff, mm-hmm. and I I tend to not ask what their stuff looks like. I don't ask about their existing network. Mm-hmm. I just ask, like, what service do you have? Like, what does it do and how does it run? Like, I just I just want to know your services. I don't care that you have a firewall here. I don't care that you have an IDS, IPS. I just want to know what service you have. And that'll allow me to kind of architect mm-hmm. in the new world. And then we'll go from there. Like, we're not going to try to be like, oh, well, I need this network to be, you know, on this router and this network to be on this router and, you know, separate physically. And it's like, that's not, that's not, it's not worth it. It's you're just basically crippling the built-in securities Mm -hmm. that exist. And so, and then I think a lot of the issues is it varies wildly between cloud providers, right? So certain ones like a Google's of the world, like it's very easy to get logging from your entire project in one place, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's going to suck it all in and put it in one dashboard. Whereas something like the AWS's of the world, it's more up to you to kind of connect these pipes. Mm-hmm. Right, like a log from an AWS service isn't going anywhere unless you told it to go somewhere. And so I think a lot of that stuff people don't kind of understand of how mm-hmm. it works. Some providers kind of give you that whole like it's effectively like it was when you were on prem. You gotta you gotta syslog that thing or you gotta yeah. put a, a log stash agent on it uh, and ship it somewhere, versus, you know, like the Googles of the world that are kind of like, no, it, we're just going to grab the logs. Like we have the logs. We'll just we're going to put them all here for you. And, you and, know? and we'll, so, we'll we'll use it as well for our own. <laughs> so it's, we'll also sell that sell that activity on to others. Uh, and the the uh, yeah. tele, tele, it was telemetrics and stuff. So telemetry. So one of the I think oh, that would be a good report to read. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Google, the Google report on like what errors they see and like how misconfigured things are and like their top. You know, like this is this is where attackers got in, right? Because they run their own. Uh, Knocks and socks yeah, and stuff, would, and so it's like expect Google now to start doing the patching for you and 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 configuring mm, things for you, and, you know, getting that mm, analytics. <laughs> that gets me in to a sore subject, which was the uh, the inclusion of the FBI comment in the uh, the Verizon report. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed there was a page from I, the FBI, and I was like, I, oh, I are did, we gonna? I actually have that right in front of me. Yeah, the FBI uh, comments. So it's so. Um, and they left they left out about how they're just going to go in and patch your systems for you, right? Yeah, like yeah, they, we, we they had, kindly we had, left that out. Yeah, we had we had a. I mean, myself uh, and uh, Josh Laspinoza and uh, yeah. Mike, we did have an episode on that about uh, now. You know, I don't need to patch my machines. <laughs> the FBI is doing it for me. So yeah, um, but I mean, it's always a balance. <laughs> so they might have the right intentions, but I think their way of communicating it. Had a lot of work to go, you know. Yeah, they, where's their breach report? Yeah, <laughs> the, the communication um, was a bit lacking and 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 going about. You know, um, the intentions. I think the intentions were good, but uh, communications was a lot to be said about. So, because uh, we were talking. Well, hopefully that that information drove some input into this report, and they kind of filled out like you know, here's the data we have from these people that got breached. Hopefully those people were involved and that data is included in this report. So, so, so one of the other things as well that kind of, um, that I took some of the key takeaways as well was, you know, privilege abuse, um, you know, overprivileged users is a big issue. Local administrators, uh, people have too many rights. They have access to everything. 
they can change security, make configuration changes. Um, and a lot of the abuse of that all comes down to a lot of the incidents are, are financially motivated. Um, you know, this is a cyber crime, as we mentioned, it's a business. There's very few that's focused around espionage or there's very few that is nation states. But when the, when the nation state one do attack, they are typically big and big companies and, and you know, a lot of downstream oh, yeah. impact of it, you know, from a, um, a privacy and infrastructure and a, a exploitation side. But when you look at it, you know, most of it, the crime out there is financially motivated. It's all about money. It's about making money. And that's what the cyber cameras are looking to do. But we come into the top common causes of data breaches. When you pull that out and you start looking at what is the top causes, it comes down to is uh, these are the lists that comes out of the report is poor access management is not you know making sure that the access controls are right correctly configured, misconfiguration of cloud storage, which I think the attribute um, in last year's report, the previous one was about human error was our biggest mistake, our biggest increase in threats was our ourselves, um, and yeah. again to overprivileged users sharing of credentials. Um, passwords being the only security control. So the only thing that's keeping cyber criminals out is passwords. And we know how poor we as humans are at selecting and creating <laughs> smart passwords um, that we only use in one system one time. Um, also, third-party access is becoming, we've seen also with things like MSSP um, breaches. We've seen um, major vendors with their patch update, supply chain, which we've, we've talked about before. Uh, employees being remote. And also in the past year, we've seen a large increase in shadow IT. You know, employees going out and, and, and shopping around for their own solutions, uh, using their own employee credentials to sign up for those services, and now and connecting them sometimes to a lot of things, whether it be email or your calendar and so forth. Um, what's your thoughts around those you know, common causes? Um, and it's something that you know are are we you know prioritizing them correctly? Can we do better? Um, what does what does that tell you? Yeah, I mean, we can always do better, but I think what do people? I some people just don't. I, I think seem to think through this, but like IAM is hard. Like it's, it's not easy, right? Like if you take away people's local admin access mm-hmm. on a box or a local administrator, fixing that box now becomes infinitely harder. And if you take them mm-hmm. away from the office and put them at home, it's like, oh, like how am I going to fix anything now, right? Because then you're, you're talking to somebody over the phone, telling them what keystrokes to type. That's no fun, right? Maybe you have a remote, session with them and you can kind of type things. But mm-hmm. if there's no local administrator on the box and all these types of things, it's it's very difficult, right? And so one, you need the budget to pay for the people that are going to then not necessarily be experts in IAM, but manage and help end users that are trying to do things. Um, I think the passwords, the shared passwords and the things like mm-hmm. that, it's we're just, there's so many services that it's just, it's either financially prohibitive mm-hmm. or they just haven't built it into their software yet and sales needs it now and they want to use that software. And so, great, we're sharing a password. Um, I don't think password managers are as prevalent as some people might think. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some people trying to make it easier and more convenient. And I think people understand that. Like Google, the browser has a password manager, which I guess they're trying to productize now and make it easier and things like that. But that doesn't natively have like a sharing thing. And so you're yeah. going to have to find a separate solution and then train users how to use that separate solution mm-hmm. to share passwords. And, you know, that's the way to go because it, it never tells the user the password, but you now have to train them and configure yeah. it and manage it. And so more more software to kind of manage that now. And so we're, yeah. the complexity level jumps just to kind of fix a simple problem. Um, 
and yeah, it's just I think IAM is a very, very tough situation it is. To, to handle. It's it's because you never like I think one of the biggest things is it creates so much friction, even for security professionals, as you're trying to go through your daily job. It's it's like, OK, cool. Now I have to assume this role and do this thing and do this thing and keep jumping through these hoops just to change one setting or to like review yeah. one log file. And I get it. And I think in my opinion is we should we should have just more logging and more audit logs and more kind of mm-hmm. built-in alerting around things like that um, to kind of catch it quick. Like I'm all for prompt for a second factor anytime anything's wrong. Like I will give mm-hmm. you that second factor, right? Like make yes. it a security key. Um, as far as the shadow IT, I think Google, well, we use Google apps and stuff and they have some advanced controls now. Um, I think they call it like their advanced security protection, which is great. It will not allow you to like use your OAuth or your ODIC authentication mm-hmm. into Google. It will not let you share any roles outside of like your email address. Okay. And so you can't connect it to your email inbox. You can't connect it to your account, like other calendars. Like you can't use third party email clients. And I think that's kind of a great step moving forward. And I wish they would bring it from an all or nothing to something mm-hmm. a little bit more manageable where I can basically approve apps and scopes that that app can take at the at the company or security mm-hmm. level and then kind of push that down. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's just going to go to one of, your, one of your points, one of the things I, you know, because I dealt with a lot of digital uh, uh, incident response and forensics. And what I've seen, it, it's went from, you know, storing the passwords in clear text on the desktop in the text file uh, to storing them in the browser uh, with no additional security. So even, <laughs> even yeah. if the attackers can access your, your laptop, they simply open up the browser, click in passwords, and there's all your passwords in, in accessible in clear text anyway. So by saving it in the browser is definitely not, you know, it's not it's not a password manager. It's just a it's a it's unless you enable security, it's just another clear text password file um, that's stored yeah. in the browser. That's all it is. Um, and we really need to be. Sure I think it's a good step though. It's a good step to making unique passwords um, and actually. Well, I think it's a good step just to get people to store them somewhere, right? Like it's an automated tool and it's very easy once you've trained users that are using this to add one layer of technology, right? Like as long as they were like, oh, you have to multi-factor before you can access your passwords, right? Easy switch, easy training users to do that. I wish it was on. I wish it was the default option. Once you start using it, then you you have to, the best thing is that one is you would get a discount <laughs> for using it, uh, for using security. And that's one other thing. We've, we've had these discussions before, but I really like, would love organizations to say is that if you're not going to use the security, it's going to cost you more. <laughs> yeah. uh, so try and push people into to, to making that, you know, security should be a, a, um, a return on investment. It should be, you know, discounted for using it and turning it on. So, Well, yeah, especially uh, if you think about risk. Yeah. Right, like the company that you're not using the security on their platform, like their reputation is going to take a hit if you leave your accounts open and it finds out that like, oh, like this company was hacked and they were on AWS. You know, it's like AWS is going to take a hit on that. Like AWS is probably big enough to come back from that. But like, you know, some of these smaller software vendors probably aren't. And so I think that that's an actual reasonable idea. Um, Going back to your on by default in the browser, I think it's a it's a fine line there because yeah. if it creates too much friction, then nobody's going to use it to begin with, right? And so if out the gate you're already asking for multi-factors, they're just like, nah, I'm just going to use the same password so I don't have to use this thing and yeah. <laughs> do the thing. But if you kind of you kind of trick them into it, right? They like get them using it for like three, four years, 
and then just flip the switch and be like, oh, hey, <laughs> you know, no, no other choice. So, so, so one thing I want to get into in the report, um, kind of bring it up into summary and, 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 and level up is that uh, here's some, some additional uh, statistics out of the uh, data breach investigations report itself was the increase in the attack actions. So these were the actions that occurred within the incidents and, and breaches. So one was that the human element uh, had an increase of 85%. Uh, credential theft and credential abuse was 61% increase year over year. Phishing was up 11% and ransomware it was only up 10%. But I think it was becoming more successful. Um, I think that was one thing is, you know, that increase, but also, you know, success. And then we look at one thing we or talked underreported. about. Yeah. <laughs> or underreported. Yeah. We only, we only hear about it um, and they just didn't go ahead. and. We don't know it yet. I, I think organizations just don't know about a lot of these yet. So it's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the other thing is, well, we talked a little bit about the risk and I mentioned that they introduced this new impact piece um, of the data breaches and this where they brought in the mean cost of different uh, types of uh, attacks. So the one that was a business email compromise um, which was uh, 95% of those uh, incidents were costing between $250 and upwards of just under $1 million. So that was for business email compromise. So significant cost of that. Um, when you look at uh, uh, CDB, which was 95% costing between $148 and up to $1.6 million. Um, so a significant cost. The next thing was around things like where well, you've got the... Uh, forensics costs of those coming in and, and cleaning up and responding and gathering. And 95% of that cost was between $2,500 and upwards of just under $350,000. Um, legal costs as well, because of course, when you you know have an incident, you have to involve your legal team because of potential regulations and compliance and audit failures. 95% of those costs are between $800 upwards of $53,000. And then ransomware. 95% of the ransomware cost was between $69 and $1.15 uh, million. So that's kind of where they're looking at this really financial portion, which I thought was quite interesting because it really shows you, well, you know, these are, you know, the average mean cost of those incidents. And to your point earlier, is it cheaper or more than the security cost? Um, and this right. is something, you know, finding that balance. Of course, I don't think these are the absolute cost because I think there's other impacts to it. But they were trying to right. get to give you an indication um, about what was, uh, you know, the, the at least the direct impact cost of those. Um, any thoughts around, you know, the, the numbers that they introduced are, are reflected there in that? Uh, um, was it surprisingly low or, or high? G given that, you know, you get one company that gets maybe 40 million or 70 million in regards to ransomware yeah. costs versus the average company. Yeah, I think it, it makes sense if we, we think about, you know, how a lot of these, these software as a service hacking tools and stuff kind of now operate. Mm -hmm. Like they're getting smarter and they know exactly how much you're willing to pay and how much you're not willing to pay before you kind of just say, like, uh, I think there was recently a breach at some hospital and they were like, okay, fine, we're going back to paper, right? <laughs> like, and so I think them being able to gauge what the willingness to pay is and start to fine tune those those financial models that they're using, um, I think that's going to start driving down prices, especially if, as we see, like the it's not always the big corporations that are getting hit mm -hmm. now. Like now they don't discriminate, and so it could be a random person at home, and it's like, well, if I can get fifty dollars out of this person, I'll take the fifty dollars because I clicked yeah. a button on a website. You know, and it did all the work. And so $50 is $50 and I can do 100 of those a day. 
starts to add up. And I, I think they're just, their financial models are starting to get mm-hmm. tuned a little bit. And so I think we'll see a lot of the costs start to drop, um, except for, you know, the very, very large companies that yeah. are willing to pay. Right? Yeah, like one, the, yeah. The once Keystone it, Pipeline. Yeah. Once, like, you're, once you're locked out and your, your business is stopped and, you know, millions has been lost a day, then, you know, they're going to take advantage of that. And I think really, when, you know, we look at it, um, it's becoming more commercialized. There's a lot of people that's doing it. As we mentioned, you know, in the past year, there's a lot of organized uh, criminal gangs who's now looking at this as a good business <laughs> entrepreneurship uh, to get into. Uh, unfortunately, they're from countries which uh, don't uh, see these as uh, crimes <laughs> or, or yeah. they will pay a blind eye for them, you know, as, if they will do some work. Uh, on behalf of the nation states as well. So unfortunately, you know, some countries are, are, are um, you know, providing safe safe havens for these cyber criminal gangs to operate and, and to cause disruptions. So yep. with that, I think, you know, to your point, it's, it's absolutely spot on. One thing I want to get to is, you know, is the report itself. Um, I find that, you know, one the report's great, and I think it's, it's evolving and getting much better every year. And one thing it's always about is that when we look at the, you know, we are, the report shows that we are getting better, even though there's a lot of, you know, major incidents, we do see a lot of security, you know, um, uh, data breaches in the past year, it does show that there is improvements, we are getting better. So for me, I think it's, you know, as we work together as a community, that it's, it's important, and I think the transparency in this report really shares that. Um, one thing I'd hope is that, you know, I do find that the actual graphs have got a little bit more complex. So my note <laughs> to the Verizon team, um, you know, it needs to stay simple. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't want to spend a lot of time trying to understand. I don't want to have to watch two to three webinars just to understand how to read the graphs. <laughs> Um, yeah. I wish so, they would give us like a playground yes. <laughs> so I could just pick the data sources, not see any of the like underlying data, but then build my own charts so I can overlay certain industries that I care about and certain types and start to see trends like, you know, specifically for my industry and, and things like that. So. Absolutely. So for, I think, you know, for me, the report's awesome. Um, any final thoughts that you want to, to, to kind of, um, you know, from, from the report itself? Yeah, no, I think I think the reports are great. I think a lot of the listeners, it, it's great to just kind of maybe grab the executive summary and kind of share it up the flagpole, if you will, because it's it's good to get people to start thinking about this and show that there's other organizations and there's there's very real costs and these these incidences that are happening are not just you know the ones you hear on the news. There's a lot of stuff that's that's going on that's at minor levels that could still impact your business to an, a significant extent, especially if you're at the smaller levels. Mm-hmm. Like some of these could be crippling, and so to kind of start to raise awareness and kind of prove out like your job worth, not that you have to prove it out, but it, it gives you more ammunition to ask for more hires, more software, more, more tooling to kind of make you better at your job. So absolutely yeah, great. great advice. So this, and, and for the Verizon team, you know, I, I, you know, definitely keep up the great work. Um, and so uh, always looking forward to, to the next report, but you know, keep the graphs a bit simpler. Um, or at least, you know, you know, for the executive side of things, you know, you know, keep it, keep it for the audience, um, the majority of the audience, right. not just those the data nerds. So as a pl- been a pleasure, Jonathan, having you on. It's great awesome. talking with you. And I think for the having. audience really kind of breaking down the Verizon Data Breach Investigation Report, um, taking some of our key takeaways and feedback. And uh, hopefully we'll, you know, people will tune in again, um, keep listening and stay safe. And it's been a pleasure having you on the show, Jonathan. So all the best and to the next episode. Awesome. Thanks. Learn how your team can get a free trial of Cybrae for Business by going to www.cybrae.it slash business. This podcast is also brought to you by Thycotic, the leader in privileged access management. To learn more, visit www.thycotic.com.